we have been in the Old Testament uh, all year. And so we have been preaching through the Old Testament, looking at one primary thing and then a consequence of that primary thing. The primary thing is the nature and the character of God. The consequence to looking at the nature and the character of God is looking at the nature and character of man. And then seeing the dynamic that exists between he and us, which is of the most importance if we are going to be people who are called by God, living unto his praise and glory, aligning our life to do so. Which at the core of that breeds conformity from who we are by nature to who he is making us. That's what you see. And you see his grace and you see his mercy and you see his patience and you see his love and you see his forgiveness and you see his kindness, you see his justice, you see his discipline. Because all of those things are a part of who he is. What we are doing this summer is I am introducing what we're calling the Discover Series. We have, and it's three components, we have what's called a Discover Fellowship. A Discover Fellowship is a 20-minute presentation after one Sunday a month. That's today, by the way, if you're here and you're a visitor and you want to know who we are. A little bit, a big, big, high-level view of who we are and what we believe. You can go to room 101, which is right, right on the other side of this hall, uh, this wall in the hallway, off of the hallway. And it's about a 20-minute presentation, just like, look, this is, this is kind of who we are. This is things that are components of our community. If you're interested in any of these things, here's who you contact, here's who you talk to. But then Tim and I have been working on, because we have not, we have not really talked about or focused on membership in any kind of way since COVID. And we've been working on that for at least 12 months. Uh, and, and we're I'm going to explain what the components of that are, but it's two more components. You have Discover Fellowship, high-level, 20-minute presentation. Then you're going to have Discover Community, which is, if you come to this community, what we want for you, whether you want it for you or not, that's a whole other dynamic. But what we're saying is, hey, if you come, what we think you should be able to do is learn about who we are a little more deeply, learn how to be involved, learn how to get involved, learn how to belong to the community to decide whether you actually want to commit to being a part of the community. You should do that first. So we give you ways to do that. We're going to be talking about those in the series. And then we're going to talk about membership. What is membership to a local faith family community? What is it? What does it look like? What are the components? What are the asks? What are the expectations? Both from us to you, from you to us. What are those things? And here's the premise. What that's all, by the way, leading up to a series on the one another's that's going to be done by Kevin Huggins about how we are to live with one another. There are a bunch of those in the New Testament, by the way. And he's going to unfold those for us after this Discover series. And that's going to lead us into a year-long journey through the New Testament, which encompasses all of the stuff we're going to be talking about in the Discover series. It's really a, a beautiful path we're going to take. But make no mistake, it's not an easy one. We live in a cultural moment 
if you can say that knowing what it is to be a part of the family of God and in the community of faith and how that is supposed to work in the context of one another, if you could ever say it's more important now than, than here, which I don't think big picture you can actually say that. <laughs> it's never been less important at any time and it will never be more important technically. However, the culture that we live in and the reality of what you and I are navigating and the reality of God's call on our life to be a distinct people who lives distinctly for the purpose of bringing Christ to one another and therefore Christ to the world. There's a challenge in front of us. And so this morning, I'm going to give what I think are some cultural reasons or the things that are behind that challenge. As soon, you know, technology's fantastic, isn't it? Especially in my hands. It works so well. Uh, here we go. Major cultural battles right now. None of what I'm about to say are actually my thoughts or things that I just came up with. These are all ideas or things that are communicated that you have seen communicated in various different ways and that you know because you live in the culture that we're in. Just in the last three months, we have seen a major nation, Russia, invade a neighboring country where so many of us are watching in a very real way for the first time. Um, there's always been battles, there's always been wars, and we've almost become used to it, but there's been something different about this one that you and I have observed. The intensity of it, the way that it's affecting the rest of the world seems to be a little new and different. And, and for some of us who are younger for the first time, uh, there's been so much commentary on, I didn't think this could happen in the 21st century. I didn't think something like this would ever occur. I didn't think I would see this again. But we are. The battle over abortion laws. News linked as do news leaked as to a potential change in law from law that has been in place for over 50 years. And according to some recent polls right now around the issue of abortion, most Americans, listen to this, you're going to think you misheard me. Most Americans support pro-choice, but are opposed to abortion. You hear what I said? You heard me right. But you're like, what? Which is the right response. Uh, because you're like, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense, but it has to do with the way that the laws are written. So most people will, the polls are telling us that most people will support pro-choice up to about 13 to 16 weeks. But the laws are written, and most of the abortion laws are that you can have an abortion up to 28 weeks. And most people are against that. So that's how you can be pro-choice. It's the context, but against abortion. 
Does that make sense to you? Why or why doesn't it make sense? Is there room for you to be on the side of pro-choice and be a sincerely compassionate person wanting and thinking that it is what's best for individuals or even be a Christian and believe those things? Yes, no, maybe. What if you're on the pro-life side of things? Is there room for you to be a compassionate person, sincerely wanting and thinking that that is best for individuals? And is it possible to do that and actually not be anti-woman? Or a bigot of some kind? Is that possible? Even yet, is it possible to have, be on that side of things and have deep compassion and empathy for women in really hard places and circumstances? Yes, no, maybe. Why or why not? If you're in one camp on that issue, can you even have conversation with people in the other one? What do you think about abortion? Why do you think it? Can you communicate what you think? Can you, communi can you communicate where what you think comes from? What informs your opinions? Where do you get your answers? Where or with whom have you vetted your thoughts, if anyone? Can you speak of those things or talk of those things or be in the presence of people who believe differently than you on those things and be redemptive? in your conversations and your actions. Can you do that? Gun laws. Heard about these anytime recently? These? I was joking and said, you know, you turn on the news, you'll see, uh, you'll, you'll see a news story about uh, some version of abortion every segment. You'll see three about gun laws every segment right now. Validly, potentially validly, we've seen a grocery store security guard and nine other people be murdered in Buffalo, a physician in Orange County, 19 grade schoolers and two teachers in Texas. All killed by guns. Wait a minute, or is it somebody with a gun? Or is it both? Or which is it? Can you be heartbroken over these things? Angry that they happen? Want to see something change? Something be different that keeps things like this from happening? And therefore believe that something must happen with our gun laws to affect these things without being an extremist who thinks nobody should have a gun? Is that possible? Is it? Can you be heartbroken over these things, angry about them happening, deeply want to see something change and be different to keep these kinds of things from happening in our country, amongst our people, but be very hesitant at the conversation of gun laws because you are afraid of the unintended consequences and where the changing of gun laws can lead. Is that valid? Any thoughts on this? 
Anybody got any opinions here? Anybody? Bet you do. Bet I could write a few scripts and hand it to you and say, just tell me which one you are. Why do you think what you think about it? Where'd you get those thoughts from? Where'd you get those opinions? Why do you hold them? With whom have you vetted those thoughts? Have you? Can you discuss those thoughts redemptively? Can you effectively communicate those thoughts in any kind of relationally mature way that has a shot at coming out redemptive on the other end? Can you do that? Widespread abuse by church leaders. Man, we've been seeing stories like this forever, but it has intensified over the last two weeks, hasn't it? Can church leaders be trusted? That's an interesting question for me to ask, isn't it? Can they? Are all spiritual authority untrustworthy and corrupt? What should be done about that? What can be done about it? How do you explain such things? When people come to you and point out those most recent stories and say, look, this, this right here, you see, this was what goes on in churches and religious circles. Abuse. What do you say? What's going to be your answer? How do you explain that? Where do you get your explanation from? Where do you get those thoughts? Can you adequately communicate them? By the way, all of these questions are leading toward an invitation at the end of this. Race, prejudice, equality. Is the BLM organization a valid organization? One that really sincerely cares deeply for the benefit of minorities and ultimately the good of society as a whole, are they? You got any thoughts about that? Can you be a black man or black woman deeply committed to the idea of black lives mattering and that sentiment not equal the ideology that they matter more than the life of any other race or ethnicity? Is that possible? Or if you are a BLM supporter or you espouse some version of Black Lives Matter, does that mean you just think it's time the tables were turned and African Americans need their recompense from the suffering they themselves have suffered and their ancestors and they need to be on top and given the upper hand to pay back what has been done to them, specifically to white people? Or is that the, is that the case? What do you think? 
Got any thoughts and opinions on that? White people? Bet you do. Are all white people racists? Can an African-American man or woman even be a racist? Do you know that's a question? It is. Is critical race theory a real thing that propagates the true agenda of the radical left to shift the balance of ethnicity in this country? Or is it just something that racists made up as a scare tactic to keep their power and upper hand to prevent change? Any thoughts about that? Anybody glad you came this morning? Anybody? <laughs> hey, you don't come and you, like, what are we doing? What are we doing here if these things are not a part of our process? What are you doing? What do you think your faith is about? What do you think, what do you think this whole spiritual endeavor is about? Just walking off into a bubble somewhere? Pretending like you don't live in the midst of the culture that surrounds you and in some aspects are a part of the problem of the culture that surrounds you? That's not right, is it? Sex and gender. Any stories about this lately? Anybody? I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is the most radical ideology that our world has ever seen. Do you know where it started? If you're interested in anything I'm about to say, there's a book by a guy named Carl Truman who wrote The Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Self. If you're gonna read this book, you better put on your big boy and big girl uh, boots because this is some heavy reading. I haven't even gotten through all of it. I went back and started in chapter one taking deep notes to try to understand the, the things that he's saying and the arguments that he's making. The cultural mandate of marriage, by the way, in just about every single culture of the history of civilized man was between man and woman. It was an obvious and acceptable cultural dynamic. In addition to this, any civilization with Christian roots or heritage the addition to that cultural dynamic was this. Sex only belongs in the context of that committed marriage between a man and a woman. It did not matter how much a particular culture or any individual wavered from these things. It was done by and large with the knowledge that it was wrong to have any other dynamic. Most, there's, there's some of you, I won't name your ages, who grew up in a culture where that was the mandate. Well, this goes on long enough and you have 
sex outside of marriage become less and less of a big deal. And now one of the most important aspects of marriage that distinguishes a marriage relationship and a marriage covenant between every other relationship is taken away. One of the primary things that exists within the context of marriage, it is taken outside. And so what it does is it takes marriage and dilutes it to just another relationship in the context of all other relationships. And when you no longer need to get married to lawfully or culturally acceptable have sex, what happens? When you have people who begin acting like they're married in every way, living together, having sex together, sharing things between them that are mutually beneficial, leaving out the sharing of things between them that's potentially not mutually beneficial. And without all the legality, if you decide to go your separate ways, it's really convenient, works out well. But now that that has dynamic change, that dynamic changes, that dynamic leads to other dynamics. I have said this before a thousand times. I've made this quote in here about, you've heard it, surely. I'm going to say it again. It's the most enlightening thing when I speak about these things and remind myself. But there was a guy named uh, um, Cornelius Plantinga that wrote a book called The Brevary of Sin. And in that book, the premise of it is this. Look, everything that was created, this is our worldview conversation. Everything that's created is good. There's nothing that exists that is not good. But when sin enters the world, sin taints everything that is good. But sin is not an entity that can exist in and of itself. It has to attach itself to what is good in order to have life. But when it attaches itself to what is good, it just twists it so that it taints the thing that is good and makes it not good. But in order to exist, there has to be good first. And here's the, the essence of his premise. The better something is meant to be, the more potentially destructive it can be. The better something is intended to be, or is in its origination, the more potentially destructive it can be. And when you take, when you compromise on heterosexual morality. You have now started a path by which your compromise leads to all other compromises. It doesn't matter whether you wanted it to. It doesn't matter whether you think that it should have. It doesn't matter whether you agree or disagree with all the other compromises that will come after. It matters none matters none with regards to whether it actually does those things or not. And it does. Eventually you have same-sex relationships because why does sex have to stay in a culturally acceptable manner solely in the context of male-female? That's the next iteration But keep in mind where it started, please. (laughs) 
there's all kinds of curriculum coming out now or, or, or things that are coming out about how now that iteration has led to transgenderism. Do you know there's actually a conflict between uh, uh, homosexual communities and transgenderism right now? Do you know why? Because in the transgender movement, if you can be a, a, a woman... Or, or be a woman who is attracted to other women, and you maybe have male characteristics or tendencies, well, then what actually is the case is, it's not just your attraction to women that's the problem, it's that I'm really supposed to be a male, and the vice versa. So now if you go through a change, and you're now a female that becomes a male, you don't have, you, you do away with homosexuality. Do you understand that? You now have a heterosexual relationship. Is that confusing to you? It should be. Is this uncomfortable for anybody? I'm sorry, I don't usually say uncomfortable things. Please forgive me. Does this stuff matter? Does this matter? Or am I just trying to like cause a ruckus and get some emails from you? I'm not doing that, by the way. Listen, there's a simple way to explain kind of what's going on with some body language here with regards to our culture. In our culture, things that are not acceptable are respond, or things that are not normal are responded to like this. This is just a body language. Think sex outside of marriage. It hadn't been too long ago where if somebody were having sex outside of marriage, you would have an entire generation of people who would understand it, but who would still go. Do you know what that leads to eventually? The more and more it happens, it leads to this. That's just what people do. That movement from to has happened in every iteration that I'm talking about. Except now the iteration goes like this. Man, I know this is not fun, and I'm sorry. Do you know what the term MAP stands for? First came on the scene about three or four years ago. Minor attracted persons. You know what used to be the name for it? Pedophilia. You have other I'm sorry, I said last week this was going to be a little bit PG-13, and I should have reminded everybody 
at the beginning of the service. I apologize for that. That is my fault. Uh, if you need to do something other with your children, I'm just about done now, and it's probably too late. Uh, but I am sorry. I, I, I should have reminded you. Um, I deeply apologize for that. Minor attracted people. Do you know one of the first steps of changing the way that you view something like this to something like this is? You change the language. And who has a right to draw the line on those people? No, 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 Michael, that's different. That is not the same thing. We are talking about children. We are talking about young, vulnerable children who are not even sexual beings until a particular age, which is different for every child. And they have no idea of the consequence, emotionally or physically, of sexual interactions, period. That is different. Then why are we teaching sex education to kindergarten through third graders? Why is that okay? Because those two ideas are incongruent. You don't have a, when the point is here, when you start to compromise in any level, compromise will outrun you. And make no mistake, the vast majority of the people that think about the last topic that I was talking about still do this. Can you imagine a time when there are multiple of people sitting around and in churches who are doing this to pedophilia? Man, I just thought I was wanting to, you know, be with my girlfriend. Not a big deal. Natural. Yeah. What do you think about these things, folks? What are you thinking? How do you navigate these things? How do you navigate them internally? In other words, how do you think about them so that you reconcile what you think about all those things on the inside? And then how do you think about them and reconcile them to where that you can even talk or communicate them externally on the outside with relationships with people that you have? And how do you do it redemptively? How do we do all these things? And the we that I'm referring to, I'm going somewhere with all this, by the way, is individuals that see themselves as followers of Christ, even more specifically, the collective group of individuals that sees themselves as followers of Christ, even more specifically, the collective group of the local gathering of individuals that refers to themselves as followers of Christ in the community of Fellowship North. The local expression of the church. C.S. Lewis has this quote that says this, Christianity doesn't solve the problem with pain, it creates it. 
What? Christianity doesn't solve the problem of pain. It creates it. There would be no problem if there were not something to compare it to. How you explain, how can you explain a crooked stick if there is no concept of a straight one? For those who know what the straight stick is, the crooked one can never do as an adequate substitute. Yet there are a whole lot of people who claim fellowship of Jesus who are embracing crooked sticks and calling it straight. The straight stick, Christ, is a reflection of how things should be, were in the beginning, how things are still intended to be and how they will one day be. And they are the embodiment of what is good, true, and beautiful. And Christ is the person that embodies that. Yet we live in a culture that is no longer willing to admit that there is any objective straight stick anywhere. Or even worse, we are the straight sticks. Just about the greatest sin of our day is anything other than full approval of somebody's convictions as good or right or true or beautiful. And to suggest anyone might need to change or conform themselves is hatred or blasphemy or evil. And the entire premise of the Christian faith is that every one of us in this room is a crooked stick. Everybody in the room is in desperate longing for what is good, true, and beautiful and the conformity to it. And we hold up Christ as the one to be conformed to and are even told, you're going to see it in the New Testament over and over again, the conformity to Christ is what we are brought to God for. That is the process of redemption that we'll one day experience when our life on this earth is done. It is Christ-likeness. Conformity, submission, is the basis of our faith. That's, that's the core. You miss that, you don't have Christianity. You got something else. You might call it Christianity, but you don't have it. We are a distinct people together with one another, helping each other navigate all of these things. But we are losing the idea of togetherness. I used some stats last week to talk about the church from uh, Chicago or the Illinois area near Chicago called Willow Creek. 57%, uh, they're at about 50%, 57% of their pre-COVID numbers in every way, mostly attendance. Of all of their network churches, there's only two that's over 60%, and that's a bunch of churches. Of those who have kept going to church, a certain number of them um, have just changed churches. It's a good opportunity to find a better fit, uh, get a fresh start, a new beginning. Uh, 
or as a tangible expression of their disagreement or dislike with the way that their current church handled arguably the most challenging culturally global movement in the past 40 to 50 years. Just left. Every church I know of, there were people who did that, including here. I've had conversations with many of them. We just didn't agree with the way things were handled. You know how many of those things I didn't agree with? Didn't feel comfortable with? Didn't know for sure whether I was doing the right thing or not? I wish I'd have known I'd have handed the mantle to you. I'm sure you would have pleased everybody. So 25 to 30% of the body of Christ have effectively gone away. Some of them to other places, most of them nowhere else. And COVID just exposed the cultural consumer mindset that was already within the church. Where folks who just come to church and expect the church which is some version of me and whoever the leaders are in this church to give you what you need or what you're after. Good luck with that. Every time Barna does a study on the church, they try to poll people who are serious Christians. Do do you know what serious Christians consists of. There's several criteria. One of them is is that people that go to church at least 1.8 times a month. It's fallen. All of these things being true while navigating the most challenging anti-Christian culture in American history. You think that's going to work? I was at a Worldview conference about three weeks ago. And Jim Daly, who is the president of Focus on the Family, was up there giving a talk. And it was a, it was a, it was a pro-life. The focus of the, the weekend was on pro-life. And so the title of his talk was How to Be Pro-Life in a Pro-Death Culture. You know what his answer was? Just be authentically Christian. That was his answer. Just be people who believe rightly based upon the input of the word of God and then bend your behavior to it, both internally and externally. This is the intro that Eugene Peterson writes in the book of Ephesians. What we know about God and what we do for God have a way of getting broken apart in our lives. The moment the organic unity of belief and behavior is damaged in any way, we are incapable of living out the full humanity for which we were created. Paul's letters to the Ephesians joins together what has been torn apart in our sin-wrecked world. He begins with an exuberant exploration of what Christians believe about God and then like a surgeon, 
skillfully setting a compound fracture sets this belief in God into our behavior before God so that the bones, belief and behavior, knit together and heal. Once our attention is called to it, we notice these fractures all over the place. There is hardly a bone in our bodies that's escaped injury, hardly a relationship in city or job, school, church, family, or country that isn't out of joint or limping in pain. There is so much work to be done. And so Paul goes to work. He ranges widely from heaven to earth and back again, showing how Jesus, the Messiah, is eternally and tirelessly bringing everything and everyone together. He also shows us that in addition to having this work done in and for us, we are participants in the most urgent of work. Now that we know what is going on, that the energy of reconciliation is the dynamo at the heart of the universe, it is imperative that we join in vigorously and perseveringly convinced that every detail in our life contributes or not to what Paul describes as God's plan worked out by Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him, everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet earth, under the authority and the submission of our Lord Jesus. That is reconciliation. We have to either understand for the first time or in some cases recapture a vision for who we are as the people of God, what that means for us practically and the reality that we desperately need one another to live in it. Each of us in our own version of brokenness help the other brother and sister navigate their brokenness with what Paul calls patience and gentleness and forgiveness in chapter four. He calls us to speak the truth to one another in love and warns us, calls us to no longer walk as Gentiles in the futility of our minds, the darkened, the darkened of our understanding, the alienation from the life of God, the hardness of heart, but to put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through our deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. The truth is in Jesus, verse 21 says. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in his love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We are going through our Discover series this summer. This is no time 
to be unclear or to lower the bar about what it is, who it is we actually are, and what the implications of being who we are are. It has to be upped. The ante has to be upped. Clarity has to be given. Conviction has to be felt. Lives have to be conformed. It's what we were made for. That's the reason behind it. Here's an invitation. I mentioned going through a Colson Fellows Worldview program. I went through it two years ago. It's a nine-month intensive program. There's a bunch of books involved. There's webinars involved where you are in real time listening to people talk about some of these issues that I brought up, some of the forefront voices in our culture today about how to think through these things Christianly and know how to talk through them. There are papers to read, articles to read, a cohort that you're a part of, that you're constantly having discussions about these things, real-life circumstances, real-life relationships that you have with people, real-life struggles to navigate those relationships and how to do them redemptively. And then there's also an invitation of something that that program, by the way, this two years ago, I went through it personally. Last year, I led a program where there was about 18 people in that. Some were in this church, some were in two other churches that are associated with the Fellowship of Churches. That program is going to happen again this coming year. I'm not going to be leading that. There's going to be a team of people that actually went through it this year that are taking the point to lead that. It's a beautiful thing. But what I am doing this year is working with somebody else to try to get some version of a, of a scaled-down version of that nine-month intensive program. That is like a master's level class. No kidding. It's intense. What I want to do is begin introducing the idea of worldview and all those same things that this worldview program brings in that nine month, bring them down to a more lay level that's more, uh, con that's more consumable, it's more understand, more e easier to understand, and a lot more conversation about how those things are fleshing out. It will only be a semester, probably start in August and run through the end of November. If you are interested in either one of those things, I am going to have an informational meeting after the first service next Sunday. It's going to be fairly short, 15 to 20 minutes, maybe yeah, 20 minutes will be the max. I got to be back in here for the second service. So you know I'm, I'm hemmed in. I can't, I can't, go, I can't go too long. Um, and then, but if you come to second service and you stay for that informational meeting, I got like all day. Uh, first service is going to be full next week. I'll do it after the first service and after the second service. We'll announce that in, uh, in the service. And I'm just, I'm just going to give you kind of a very high-level layout of that, tell you how to get registered for both of those things. It is our, it is, it is my job not to give you what you think you need. Couldn't possibly do that. I don't even want to know what that is most of the time. But it is to equip the saints for the work of service because the more your life is conformed to the life of Jesus, the fuller, 
life you live. If you want to care about you the most, then you die to you the most. Because the extent of which you die to you will be the extent of which you live to Christ and experience the fullness that is only in Him. And that's just the first step. Because when you start after that, do you know what God does with you? He uses you to come alongside your brothers and sisters who are just like you, broken. And you put their arm, you put your arm around them, and you lead them to Jesus. Just like you're being led to Jesus. You follow, you help others follow. Being a disciple, being a disciple maker. It's the fundamental of your faith. Conformity to the person of Jesus and deep, deep caring about the conformity of the people that you love to the person of Jesus. Not for their ill, but for their absolute good. You got all that? All that clear? At least it'll make for some interesting lunch conversation. Wish I could be a fly on the wall there. Let me pray for you. Father, we are in over our heads. I am in over my head in me. Much less the navigation of the brokenness between myself and my brothers and sisters. Much less the navigation of the brokenness between myself, brothers and sisters, and the world who does not know you. Absolutely in over my head. But you tell me that's, uh, that's the only real right, right way to see things because you are the source of the power and the knowledge and the courage to point to what is good and right and true and beautiful and to live in a deep longing for it. Be in us. Transform us. Lead us to be a light in the midst of the darkness. That is not something that we just come up with on our own. It is in you. Conform us to your likeness. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.